The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. I'm Senator Vern White, and I'm ready to start digging deep. I'm Mark Sutcliffe, and I'm on a quest to learn from the best. Welcome to Digging Deep, presented by Zen Books and Abacus Data. This is the latest in our series of one-on-one conversations with really interesting, thoughtful, accomplished people who come from many different fields. On this episode, values, fairness, ethical leadership, and doing the right thing with Canadian Senator and former police chief Vern White. So when he was 20 years old, Vern White was working as a bartender in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. That's where he's from. And he went on a ride along with a couple of police officers who were regulars at the bar. What he saw that night, how the officers made a difference in the lives of the people they encountered, changed Vern's life. It set him on a course to join the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, and eventually to become a police chief and later a member of the Canadian Senate. Over the course of his career in policing and politics, Vern White's perceptions about crime and punishment have changed dramatically. It's not just, as he originally thought, about putting the bad guys in jail. It's about the community. It's about addressing social issues like poverty and addiction. Vern is going to share with us today the values that he learned from his childhood in Cape Breton, where his father, like so many others, was a coal miner. Vern remembers how... When you heard a whistle from the mine, you knew that somebody's father wasn't coming home. Vern's dad taught him how when you know what the right thing is, then you're out of options. And his mother taught him fairness and compassion. And Vern still feels her looking over his shoulder as he makes major decisions today. Vern also shares what happened when he was diagnosed with cancer about 10 years ago and why that ended up being the best year of his life. And he shares a valuable message about the difference between training and education. We talk about when he was appointed to the Senate, the value of ethical leadership, why it's important to look around the corner, and why he doesn't want to be in a room full of people who agree with him. It's a really interesting and thoughtful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. One last thing before we get started. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and post a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and share it with your network. And if you're looking for more information on this episode or on the podcast in general, please go to my website, letsdigdeep.com. That's letsdigdeep.com. Now, let's start digging deep with Canadian Senator and former Police Chief Vern White. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast, Vern. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you very much, Mark. Great to see you again. So let's start uh, with our rapid fire questions. And what is your fondest childhood memory? Fishing with my dad, you know, walking. He was a coal miner. And 
when he found time to take you fishing, it was uh, usually early in the morning because he would go to the mine at 5.30, so you were going fishing at 5.30. So walking along a stream and just casting under a few bushes to pull out a speckled trout and then cooking them on a rock at lunchtime. Yeah, that would be my, my fondest memory by far. That's beautiful. Who was your hero when you were 10 years old? Oh, my, my dad was, yeah. Look, he worked so hard for us. I, I can't imagine anybody who... Uh, he would take us fishing, take us to play sports, uh, camping. He was very much an at-home father when he wasn't working in the mine. So I, there was nobody. And all of my friends would kind of congregate around our house, uh, lots of single family, uh, single mom families, and congregate around our house. And dad would make everybody pancakes or upside down apple cake or whatever, you know. Yeah, no, no, he was uh, he was my favorite. I to just go with him visiting some of his friends from the mine and sit in the house and listen to them. Uh, to see them chewing tobacco and talking about something that happened two weeks before in the mine. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Yeah. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Uh, you know what? I probably thought I was going to be an astronaut. I never, uh, an astronaut. In my, in, in, yeah. In my mind, uh, you know what? That seems like a cool thing to be those guys flying around all the time. And at the time it was big in America, you know, in the late sixties. So I was, you know, nine, 10, 11. So uh, for me, uh, that's something I always thought I, I'd like to do. But growing up in uh, small town Cape Breton, uh, you might be flying. You weren't flying there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have there so, been any astronauts from Cape Breton? I don't, no, I, I don't. Not think, yet, yeah, I don't I think. A couple of space cadets, maybe. <laughs> no astronauts. <laughs> what is your life story in six words? Look around the corner. That's less than six, but. I look around the corner. Why do you yeah, say look that? Look because if you only see what's straight in front of you, I, I think often you'll miss some opportunities. And for me, it's always been about that little peek around the corner and, oh, you know what? I could be a police officer. I never ever thought I could be a police officer. They, you know, I think I've, you've probably heard me say before my first ride alongs were in the back seat being taken home. Um, so, so it, you know, for me, having that ability to look around the corner and see another opportunity that you didn't think was out there. Very cool. For what do you feel most grateful? Oh, my, my, uh, having the most awesome parents in the world. They, they, my mom and dad were very simple people, not educated, but they were focused on raising a family. My brothers and sisters are all social workers who worked in the community. My mom stayed at home until my dad retired from the coal mine. He worked 38 years, started when he was 14. And uh, having the best parents in the world that raised a family in a tough neighborhood, where not everything went perfect for everybody or anybody really. And uh, I, I, I'm so grateful to have them as parents. I think they really uh, brought the most and the best from all of us in the family. Wow. What's been the best year of your life so far and why? Um, oh man, there's so many great years, you know, um, the best year of my life. Uh, you know what, because you and I exchanged emails, probably the best year of my life has to be the year I actually had cancer mm. um, because it made me appreciate uh, a little bit like people talk about COVID, the little things matter more, the big, the, the big, or the big things matter more, the little things matter less. So when I was going through cancer, we were, uh, sorry, and I were just married, um, you know, eight months, seven months. And I'm thinking, holy crap, I can't believe at 51, I have cancer. It's not right. I, I know people who smoke like crazy and drink like they deserve this kind of crap. I do not. Um, and, and to be honest, meeting a friend of yours, Greg, he bear changed that because I realized that uh, if he could be so positive 
in such a difficult time, who the hell was I to be thinking this way? So it refocused me. And so that year, as, as many people would say, how can that be a great year for you? And not because I battled through it, but because it really made me appreciate the things I had, the, the people I had in my life, uh, how lucky I was. Um, uh, yeah, that, you know, so so for me, I guess 2011 was probably the best year because it, it brought a lot of things out for me and helped me um, find my direction in many ways. Yeah, wow. That's really powerful. And for people who don't know, Greg Bear was a broadcaster in Ottawa who had cancer and um, was just, it was incredible how he dealt with it and, and coped with it and and turned it into this big fundraising machine and yeah. told the story. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not even doing justice to the amazing yeah. work that he did, but uh, really had an impact on a lot of people. He, he and I were engaged with the men's cancer run that year, 2011. Yeah. And I had found out I had cancer two weeks before. So I wasn't overly happy about showing up at a cancer run, having just found out I have cancer and I hadn't told anyone. And a lot of things happened that day, but, but I was for use some better words. And if you have to take a word out later, I was pissed off at the world that had happened to me. And uh, when I showed up there, it was just behind Carleton university along the pathway there. You probably were there as well. Um, I was grumpy. I didn't want to be there. It was a Saturday morning. And I'm thinking, you know, like the last thing I want to do is you know, run, with cancer now, all of a sudden running around raising money for cancer. It just didn't connect with me at all until, and it wasn't 45 seconds with this guy. Like he's sitting there in a lawn chair and obviously very sick. Um, and I think they might, might have lifted him from a wheelchair because I, I remember saying, I, I can't imagine he walked here and I'm thinking, oh, I, I don't think I want to talk to this guy. And, and all of a sudden I'm in front of him. And uh, minutes later, I'm leaving there saying, man, oh man, that's, that guy is powerful. I can't, I can't believe the impact this guy is having on people around him and including me. So yeah, you, I appreciate what you said about Greg, but probably not even close to the impact he had yeah. on thousands and thousands yeah. of people just in this city. It really was uh, awe-inspiring, I, I have to say. Mm. Very much so. Think about him all the time. Uh, what would you say, I mean, you just described the, the year you had cancer as the best year of your life. What was the toughest year of your life so far? You know, probably the most difficult year of my life. I was in uh, running a... Uh, an investigation in Yellowknife into nine, uh, nine people were blown up and murdered by a, during a gold mine strike. And, you know, we're working, you know, kind of um, two, two and a half weeks of 12, 14 hour days over, over a year, over a 13 month period. And you get a day off. And about halfway through that, I see people around me kind of falling apart, really police officers who I thought, you know, could handle anything. And their families, in some cases, felt that that year. So, 1992 was probably the most difficult year for me. The work was just so challenging. And in the beginning, it was exciting, a bit of a roller coaster ride. But you think you're going to make an arrest any day. And when that those days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and really, we were more than a year before we made an arrest. Um, that year was just devastating. I, I, you know, I watched some good friends who who battled mental health halfway through that, who ended up separated later divorced who fought alcoholism and i'm not blaming any of that on the work i'm blaming it on the fact that they they could not 
manage their way out of a very difficult situation, which was, you know, 70, 80, 90 hour weeks, uh, week in and week out. That was difficult for me uh, to watch that because I thought, um, first of all, I'd never experienced that kind of breakdown of people around me so quickly. Uh, and, and secondly, I really thought that the organization was in better condition to manage it than it was. Hmm. What one person has had the greatest impact on your life? Yeah, I'm always back to my father. Yeah. Yeah. All five foot eight of them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, he was just a little guy, but uh, man, he was something else. He was just a, uh, I, I, I don't think I ever had an argument with him. You know, I disagreed with him many times, but he always had that ability to kind of bring the best out in you and uh, yeah, influence me for sure for life. Yeah. He, he, yeah. Nobody close. Incredible. What's the most important lesson that you've learned that you would share with other people? Probably what I, I guess many things I've learned, you know, I'm, I'm, one I always joke about is the best job you have and the most money you make will never be the same place. You know, those kinds of things, but probably right. the, the, the life lesson for me um, has been that caring for the, your caring for your community does pay a dividend back that they will care for you. I've seen that in small communities in the Arctic where, you know, I was very involved coaching different, uh, you know, kids teams, some of which I'd never played the sport like indoor soccer and, and, uh, and been in a very difficult situation trying to make an arrest and people come out of the crowd to help me rather than see me find myself in even worse shape um, because they knew I cared about that community. And, and so, so I do think, and as a police officer, and, and I served in, you know, probably 18 or 19 communities across the country, um, I've seen that time and time again, that regardless if you truly do care for the community, that they will come out and support you uh, when you need it. And I, I think it's easy to become jaundiced in that type of job where you start to believe, you know, the heck with the community. I'm here to do my job. I'll put people in jail, but don't expect to, you start to, I can see that happening to officers and I, I can probably happen to me at times, at times as well, but even working everywhere. And in particular in the city of Ottawa, I saw that when you cared for the community, that the community cared for you. Yeah. I saw it when Eric Chapnick was killed, for example, you know, people walking down the street toward you and would ask if they could give you a hug, never met them before. And they don't, they didn't know Eric. They probably didn't know a police officer personally, but they knew that the, the police service was out working hard for them. And we lost one of our own kind of discussion. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah I saw it uh, many, many places and lucky enough to work in three different police services across the country and so many places that I've, I've seen regardless of where it is, it seems like it happens uh, regardless of, uh, of the community itself or the service you're with. Yeah. Eric Chapnick, for those people who, who don't know, or, or may not remember that was an Ottawa police constable who was, uh, was killed while he was in his vehicle, right? He was attacked. Yeah. Um, was by, that... a, by a suspended RCMP officer. Yeah. And that and never met. That was what? 12 years ago. Yeah. Years two, ago? It was uh 2011, I guess, uh, just oh, after okay. Christmas, 2010, oh, 10 11, years ago. Yeah. Christmas. Yeah. What do you think people would be most surprised to learn about you? <laughs> I, I, I don't know, actually. I, maybe, you know, the fact that I have a doctorate, maybe. Right, yeah. Lots of, lots of people think, you know, well, I, not I very well, not that. a well-educated guy or something. They don't well, come no, across that. I, <laughs> I know you've, you know, you teach and, and I know you've done a lot of, you've taken a lot of courses, whatever, but yeah. then I, I was 
preparing for our interview and I saw you referred to somewhere as Dr. Vern White. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So you have a PhD now. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did that uh, started in 07, finished in 13. And I, I think I, I, I joked that I was part time in school for 22 years to finish three degrees. Right. Um, not the way I planned to do it. In fact, you know, really, I don't think I ever had a plan. I just kept finding something. Geez, I'd love to try that. And then all of a sudden you're a thesis away from your master's and then you're a thesis away from your doctorate and you spend four years doing your thesis. So I think most people are surprised by that. They yeah. see this uh, Cape Bretoner and oh yeah, geez, he was a cop right? all that time. You know, they don't, they don't think that he actually went out and, yeah. and did some and you And you got it from one of those late night infomercials, right? <laughs> I, got it, I got it from the Sutcliffe <laughs> School of Education, uh, right next to the Trump site, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From Trump University. Yeah. <laughs> Trump University. True story. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, what is yeah. your secret talent? And but actually, before that, I got to say though, I mean, like, good okay. for you. Like, like, congratulations on getting that done because that's you. You've been working, you know, more than full time hours and getting, yeah. getting a master's, getting a PhD while you're while you're a police chief and a. I mean, that's you know. So congrats. If any, you know, anybody listening thinks, oh, I don't have time to take a university course while I'm working. Like, you know, there's the evidence that you can make it happen. So good for you. No. And I, I think policing is a real opportunity. Uh, I think that continuous learning piece should be an obligation in policing, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, um, we always often talk about training and training teach you very well how to do the same thing over and over so that you have a control situation and you can manage the situation. I think education teaches people how to think differently and do things differently. So that's, that's always been my focus. I teach at Charles Sturt University in Australia. Now I've been teaching there for over a decade uh, part-time and I bring officers to Canada every year, except COVID years um, for the same reason, because I think they have an opportunity to learn differently. So I, th I think that is important for police officers. So it certainly has helped me in my career, but I think it's been important for me in my career as well. Yeah. And I love that distinction you made. And I I've heard you make it before between training and education. Training is very much about how to do something over and over again. And yeah. education is a lot more about why we're doing something or yeah. what we're choosing to do, right? Which is a yeah. really important distinction. Yeah, I remember I brought two years ago, uh, two and a half years, uh, year, I guess three years ago now, I brought 30 officers from Australia, which I typically do. And uh, two years ago, and uh, I brought them when we spent a day at the inner city health downtown uh, at the supervised consumption site and watching people overdose and be brought back to life with naloxone. And these officers are pretty hardened cops and Australian cops haven't been exposed to the same social side of policing that Canadian cops have for the most part. And our discussion with them the day before and our discussion with them the day after, their whole perspective had shifted around addictions and, and uh, the criminalization of drug addicts and things like that to the point where I still engage with them probably weekly or every couple of weeks, the vast majority of them through emails asking me, what do you think about this? Here's what I'd like to try. And I'm in Perth or I'm in Northern Territory in Australia. Um, so I think that learning opportunity for yeah. them just, just gave them one more opportunity to think, you know what, what I thought isn't exactly the reality, you know, for a lot of these addicts. So, yeah, no, I think it is. I think it's important. Yeah. All right. So what is your secret talent? Oh, but I, I, I don't have one. I probably, I, 
I don't know that I have a secret talent. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not really. No, I mean, I, I played alto sax for decades and there you go. And I uh, haven't played in a little while now, but uh, you know, it was, I guess I, some would say I wasn't that talented. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was, the, that was the secret. <laughs> yeah. That's maybe that's why you kept it a secret. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's your boldest prediction for the future? I, I, I guess, you know what, and I, this is probably recent for me, I think COVID will change how we we look at our own priorities. I'm, I feel it now that people's priorities have changed and shifted, but I think it will, uh, I think it will uh, hang, uh, hang on with us. I, I think young people now, their priorities around where they live, what their home looks like, what they value has changed, and I think it will impact on us for decades to come. Um, uh, you know, I, I uh, so so I, 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 but it's probably not as bold today in the middle of COVID as it would have been a year and a half ago pre-COVID. Yeah. If you were speaking to a group of students today, what would be in say a commencement address? What would be your message? Uh, prob- probably about the importance of working in their community, and I, I don't mean paid work. I mean the engagement, volunteerism. Uh, I always. I always thought and, and still believe that it, it means a lot to our communities that we as people, if in any position, not just in policing, in your position, and I know how engaged you are, but I think that that volunteerism piece cannot be oversold. I think it is important for our own development. And I tell, I spoke to City Collegiale Police Foundation students here in July, and I said the same thing to them. It's not just about your development. It will develop you, but it's not just about that, but it's about community development as well. And I think Canada has a, a place in the world when it comes to volunteerism, unlike um, almost any other country. You know, I spend time, as you know, in Finland and, and do some work in Australia and, and a bit in the U.S. And there, I haven't yet to go to a community that has people engaged and volunteering and willing to build something um, as quickly as can, as Canadians do, so I think it's something we own, but but I think it's something we we should cherish because it's so valuable to both our our own growth and our community's growth. Mm. Is there a book that's had a big impact on you? Is there a book that you're most likely to re- recommend to other people? I could say yours. It's in behind you, over <laughs> your left shoulder. <laughs> Make you feel good. Yeah. Thank you for noticing uh, the advertising. It was it was yeah. inspiring, by the way. Okay. Um, <laughs> No, not one. Um, probably, uh, you know, if I go back, I, I read a book when I was probably late teens, early 20s called The Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which was about Russia wow. and a guy who, who uh, was in, interned in Russia. And I guess the reason it's, I still think about that book is because I look at what's happening in China with the Uyghurs. I look what's happening in Russia with everything Russia does. Um, in Belarus most recently, I, I look at those countries and they're still really powerful and they're still doing the exact same things to their own people and anybody else they can um, day in and day out, whether it's yeah. the two Michaels or whether it's, uh, you know, their own citizens in China. So I, I, I that book impacted on me from, I didn't realize that was happening in the world perspective. And to this very day, you know, 40 years later, I still think, oh my God, how do, how do we continue to allow these countries to do these things or or not even allow them to do it how do we continue to support them by buying things they make or or, yeah. or engaging with them as a trade partner to the fullest lot like it just it ha- i have to say that's and it's probably one of the more difficult things i find sitting in the job i sit in now in the senate 
is that we still don't call these things out. Yeah, we'll say a few things, and oh, we, the behavior of China when it comes to um, minorities is horrific. And then we sign a new agreement with them for $100 billion to make sure, like it just doesn't make sense to me that we can uh, talk out of one side of our mouth and then switch so quickly to talk out of the other side. It saddens me because, you know, Canada is not powerful, but we can punch up pretty easily. Yeah. And lots of times other countries look to us for our behavior toward other countries like, uh, you know, China's behaviors or, or Russia's behaviors. And uh, if we're not showing them, uh, I'm not sure who is. Yeah, great point. What, what's the name of the book again? Uh, Day in the Life of Ivan Denesevich. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you for answering those questions. We're going to take a short break and then continue digging deep with Senator Vern White. We're just going to take a quick break so I can tell you a little bit more about the presenting sponsor of Digging Deep, ZenBooks. ZenBooks is Canada's go-to cloud accounting firm. They are not your typical accounting firm. I know the founders, Colin and Eric. I've worked with them for several years. And here's why I think you should consider working with them, too. First of all, they bring a fresh, unique, modern approach to what is a very old-fashioned industry. These guys were working remotely and in the cloud long before it became cool. ZenBooks also uses technology to your advantage. I think this is really important. They give you the tools and analysis you need to monitor your business in real time. That's so valuable right now when everything changes so quickly. Yes, they're a virtual accounting firm, but that doesn't mean they're offshore, and it doesn't mean they're inattentive. ZenBooks combines the efficiency and effectiveness of a cloud accounting service with all the benefits that you'd want from a trusted advisor, high-level advice, and strategic support. Now, here's what I think is going to happen if you work with ZenBooks. You'll probably start out taking advantage of their cutting-edge cloud accounting solutions. But in the long run, I think you'll stay with them because of their strategic guidance and problem-solving. Among their core values, they specifically list being candid and proactive. Isn't that exactly what you want from a trusted advisor? Look, even if you're already working with an accountant or a bookkeeper or you have some accounting staff on your team. I think you should still talk to ZenBooks and learn more about their tools and their expertise. Check out ZenBooks at zenbooks.ca. That's zenbooks.ca. Digging Deep is all about helping you make better decisions, and so is Abacus Data. Most leaders struggle to connect with and engage their audiences. Why is that? It's because they aren't sure how they think and feel and how they will react. Abacus Data can give you the strategic insights you need to make better decisions and to make them confidently. Here's a good example. A major national union was recently negotiating a new agreement for its thousands of members. This had the potential to be a very difficult process. There were many competing interests. So they brought in Abacus Data to conduct thorough and detailed research of their members to learn exactly where they stood, what they were thinking, what they wanted. And as a result, they were able to secure a strong new deal that was accepted overwhelmingly in a national vote. Abacus Data 
helps all of its clients understand what's really happening in the minds of their employees, clients, and stakeholders. They help them avoid costly blind spots. And they're really good at what they do. In fact, Abacus Data was one of the most accurate pollsters in the 2019 Canadian federal election. Make the one decision that will improve all of your other decisions. Let Abacus Data help you move forward with confidence and clarity. Go to abacusdata.ca. That's abacusdata.ca. So once again, Vern, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast because I've interviewed you many, many times over the years. Uh, Usually you know, about something very specific, uh, because you've, you've been a police chief, you've been a senator, there's, there's always something in the news that we end up talking about. But it, I've also worked with you in the community, and, and we've gotten to know each other quite well over the years. And it's, it's been really a pleasure for me and, and just a great opportunity to watch you work and see how you think and the, the strategic thought that you bring to things, the uh, you know, policing can be very reactive, but I know you've, and we can talk about this coming up, you've tried to, in, in your roles, to be solving bigger problems than just, you know, solving the immediate issue right in front of you. So uh, really looking forward to our discussion. Thank you again for, for coming on today. Yeah, my pleasure. So let's, uh, I, I read a quote from you um, where you said, every leadership decision I've made my mom was looking over my shoulder. Uh, you spoke about your parents already. Just tell me what that quote means. I, you know, I, I, I grew up in a very um, uh, atypical family where our parents were very connected to every one of us growing up. And my mom, you know, when I was a kid, my mom talked about uh, um, gay rights and nobody was talking about gay rights in the in Cape, my town in Cape Breton, you know, but my mom was, you know, she felt that we should listen to these things when talking about gender rights. And so, I, you know, I grew up with this five foot, hundred pound woman over my shoulder my whole life. And so every, uh, and I've tried, uh, do I think every decision she would have agreed with? Of course not. I might've got a, a cuff behind the left ear one of those times, you know, or less so from her to be fair, uh, more like a, a talk. Um, but I have tried to make sure that whatever decisions I've made, my, my mom was in my mind thinking, you know what, Vern, this is the right thing. It's a good thing to do. And, you know, it's, um, I've, I've said before, you know, my mom and, and dad would, you know, have this belief that if you know what the right thing is, you're out of options on whatever decision you make. And in fact, I, I remember using that with the former premier of Ontario when I went hard after him about drug treatment in the city of Ottawa. And I said, you know, my parents were clear that when you know what the right thing is, you no longer have options. So I knew the right thing was to say, you needed to do something about this for this community. And, and, uh, because I, I truly do believe that uh, if you have strong parenting and, and, uh, and connected to your values, that they can influence you. But my mom has been on over my shoulder my whole life. Uh, she passed in 2003, and, and she would probably love to hear me say that, but at the same time would be very clear to say, but I didn't make all those decisions <laughs> because all of them <laughs> weren't hers. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so it's been important to me that uh, I represent what they raised, you know. Yeah. I love that quote too. you from your dad. When you know the right thing to do, you're out of options. Like there, yeah. there is only one option once you figure out what the right yeah. thing is to do. Right. And that's, it's not easy. Uh, and, and there are all these different 
pressures and factors pulling us in other directions. But, but ultimately, in, in some ways, once you figure out what the right thing is to do, it, it should be pretty straightforward from there, right? Yeah. And the first few times I heard that I was probably because I had not made the right decision, <laughs> Yeah, you know, growing up. Right. But, but, but no, it, it, it stuck with me throughout my policing career. I remember arresting an officer I worked with and uh, him wanting me to not arrest him and me saying, man, you know what? It's we're past that point. It's, it's no longer a decision. I know that letting you off on this is not the answer. Yeah. And, uh, and in fact, you know, years later, I, I met him, he didn't lose his job, uh, he was convicted. I met him and him saying the best thing ever happened to me was that because it forced me to take accountability for my drinking and my alcoholism, and I'm in a better place. And yeah, I probably impact negatively on his career for the rest of his life. But he saw that it was important. But not that I needed that, because I still knew it was the right thing to do. But yeah. I think it is important. So can you talk more about your childhood? Because you, you grew up in, a, in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, a beautiful island, but, um, but your dad was a coal miner, as many people in Cape Breton were. Yeah. Um, you had, I mean, it, it's a tough environment. It was, it's a tough community. It's, a, it's, it's not an easy place to grow up. So can you describe your childhood? Yeah, yeah. Look, at uh, I, I grew up in a place called Scotchtown, which is kind of on the edge of New Waterford, which is a coal mining town of about ten. You know, back then probably twelve thousand people. It's probably nine thousand people there now. Uh, very rough. You know, uh, we had dozens of bars. That uh, I think we had no hotels, motels, or restaurants, but we probably had thirty different drinking establishments and bootleg around every street or every second corner at least. Um, you know, and you're you're. Your father's uncles all worked in the coal mine and, you know, somebody got uh, killed in the mine, they'd sound a whistle and everyone would sit on the front step and wait and see if your dad came home. And uh, you hoped yours wow. did, you know? Yeah. So, so that lifestyle, and I do think, you know, that work hard, hard drink hard lifestyle of, of those communities is comes from the fact that, you know, they're putting their lives on the line every single day, miles out under the Atlantic Ocean, uh, mining for coal. Um, I think that they, they, you know, they know they're dying earlier than normal because they're all going to have black lung as my dad did and every, all of my friends' fathers did. So I think that lifestyle, uh, you know, makes it a very rough uh, upbringing. Uh, I think it made me who I am in many ways. It allowed me an opportunity to see how difficult things can be for some families. And, you know, when I grew up, uh, it wasn't uncommon to have people show up at our house who had been beaten up by their spouse. And my mom and dad would take care of them for a few hours and, you know, try to patch them up a little bit. And I don't remember ever having the police called. I do remember my dad going to neighbors' houses to talk to the to the father about what happened and why this shouldn't be happening discussion, I guess. I was never invited to go with him, but I know how it would typically fare. Um, and then very much a community that took care of it, its uh, its neighbors as well, though, you know, that if there was yeah. an issue, you were you could always look to someone, you know, if a kid went missing, you had every house, every kid, every parent out looking for them within minutes. So, you know, as much as it was a rough, rough community to grow up in, it was a very caring community in many ways as well. You know, raising money to build a new church, um, you know, coal miners would sign on to pay an amount after every, every paycheck for years uh, to build a new church. Some of them didn't even belong to the church, but it's kind of what you do, right? You, yeah. you, did, you did these things. So, 
uh, it, I think it helped me understand the importance of building or working in a community and, and building a community. And then having brothers and sisters who all get involved in social work, I think it shows how my parents, they're really the, how, what they believed in when it came to community building as well as social work. And I think my policing model, as much as, you know, I, I think I, I held my own as an investigator, I also think I held my own as a community builder. And that right. was really one yeah, of I was going to say, you're, you, you know, policing is a form of social work or can be, right? Um, well, so. the, people we, the people we deal with, you know, 60 yeah. 20, 25% of mental illness, 60, 70% of the people in our prison systems have mental illness and or addictions or concurrent disorders. So obviously you're dealing with people who are engaged and connected in the, the social system, social work system in the community. And often you're trying to find solutions for them, right? Yeah. Outside of the justice system. You, you talked about the, the dynamic of having a coal miner for a father. I, I went to, uh, there's, a, there's a museum in Cape Breton. Uh, yeah, in Glace Bay. Miners Bay. Museum. Yeah. yeah. And um, first of all, um, you, you, unless you've done it, you have no idea just how far down underground they go, right? The, the, and how dark it is and how filthy it is and how yeah. dangerous it is unless you go down. A, and we, you know, the part of the tour is you go down yeah. into a yeah. decommissioned mine. And so that w had a huge impact on me. But then I was also chatting with the tour guide who was a retired miner. That's right. And he talked about how uh, he was there when there was a collapse one time and he, uh, you know, a bunch of broken bones. He was in the hospital for three months. And at the time he and his wife, they had just gotten married and they were, they were building their first home. And on the weekends, you know, he and his friends would do some work on this home. And now he was in the hospital for three months and the day he got out of the hospital, he goes to this new home and it's finished, right? Oh, they, nice. they all, they all got together and finished the house while he was in the hospital, right? Like that. Yeah, no, no. It, it, and those guys, I mean, that's a camaraderie, right? It, yeah. Like I said, my dad was 14. I think his older, younger brother was younger than he was when he started the coal mine. So that's almost all they knew, you know, working 30, yeah. 35, 40 years, miles under the Atlantic Ocean, if you think about that. Um, to dig for coal and there's a collapse all the time and yeah no no it's it's it is a tough life but it's one uh, most of them love my dad loved being a coal miner he would never have been anything else you know he, wow. he thought uh, and he talked so fondly of his the guys he worked with I mean because they you know they were there doing the same thing he was putting their life on the line to to pull you know black rocks out of the ground i know it's uh yeah it's uh wow but that, and that miners museum still operates and still operates with retired miners as, as tour guides which i yeah. think is really key to that experience oh absolutely so as i understand it, and i think you've told me this story before but you you were doing some bartending and uh <laughs> you got invited to go on a ride along with the police and that that kind of is how you got into policing or at least that's where it started right yeah, I was, you know, 20, going to 19, going to college, um, doing a business diploma and bartending at a bar where a couple, a lot of police officers would show up at. It was a police, primarily police bar, but there were also teachers and stuff would show up in, in behind a racetrack in Sydney. And there's one night a guy, I'd always ask questions about policing because I'd never seen the police straight on. I was usually looking over my shoulder. Um, so I was asking questions about policing. <laughs> did you, and, so did you get into a bit of trouble as a... Not serious, but, you know, yeah. arrested for drunken fighting, you know, as 17, 18 year olds outside a hockey rink in the Waterford. And, um, everybody was 
under that risk probably right that yeah on a friday night kind of thing in that town um Anyway, he says, oh, you should do a ride-along. And I joked, uh, first off, saying I've had ride-alongs with you guys before. Not so much fun. Um, and then saying that, look, you really RCMP officer was. And I said, you don't hire people from my town, my street, my family into the RCMP. Like, you know, we see you guys drive through our town. It's because you're there to drag someone out of it, not for any other reason. But he convinced me to go out. And I did a ride-along. And the first call or second call was a domestic violence case. And I was really nervous. I think I was 20 and, and, you know, we went up to the house and uh, outside the kids were crying. The front windows were smashed out of this uh, split entry uh, house. We go inside and they're screaming at each other, man and woman. And the officer tells me, just talk to the lady. And so I do, and I'm talking to the lady and the, the officer's calming the guy down a bit. And then the minute the lady says, and then he hit me, the officer said, you're under arrest. We took the guy, we put him in the back seat of the car, handcuffed him, went back inside, got the kids inside. They had food sitting on a, on a, in a pot on the stove, got their food out on the table. He helped nail a sheet of plywood over the broken window. And 30 minutes after we got there, we were driving away with the guy and taking him to lock him up. And I said, I cannot believe the impact you just had on, I didn't probably say it to him, but in my mind, the impact you had on this family as difficult a situation as that was, I felt we had a positive influence on a positive outcome that, you know, they're back yeah. sitting at their table eating uh, as a, with their mom. And, and we took this guy to, to the office to lock them up and he was charged with domestic violence. And I did hundreds of hours of ride-alongs after that. Uh, and every, not all the experiences were great and not all of them were exciting like that was, but I still felt that there's this opportunity uh, for an occupation where you can make a difference in someone's life in an instant, um, mostly positive. Sometimes, you know, for the guy in the backseat of the car, maybe not so positive, right? But we were still overall, from a positivity perspective, we were engaging with the family and and trying to write some things. Yeah. And uh, I met that officer in uh, 30 years later in Hay River, uh, Northwest Territories, uh, at, at the officer a, that uh, took you on the ride along. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was living up there with his daughter, and um, I think his wife as well. But I know with his daughter, and he was retired from the RCMP. And I was speaking at an RCMP uh, uh, event, and I, I and he was there with his wife, and I had uh, talked about the influence he had on me, and I didn't realize he was there. And he comes up afterward. My God, he said that was me, and I was driving that day, and I said, "Oh my, I can't believe this." So, so it was that for me, it was that much of a connection to the community, the things my mom and dad always talked about trying to make positive change that this job could do that. Yeah. As much as there's lots of boredom and there's lots of paperwork and all that, but still the opportunity to make that difference at the pointy end of the stick, as I would say, uh, was there. So we kind of grew up with this a paradigm of, of good guys and bad guys, right? Cops and robbers and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And, um, and I, I've come, you know, over time, I, and through the volunteer work I've done, I've, I've come to realize how at the root of a lot of what ends up becoming criminal behavior is a mental health issue or an addiction yeah. issue or, an issue related to poverty or, or somebody who started it. And I'm not making any excuses nope. and I'm, you know, uh, but, but the reality is, you know, I think it is fair to say that if we solved issues around poverty and hunger and drug addiction and alcoholism 
uh, and mental health, uh, that there'd be a lot less crime, right? And so as a, as a police yep. officer and as a police chief in your career, uh, did, did, your, did your perceptions change over time? Because I think, I think we still sort of portray this, this equation of, you know, the police are the good guys and the, and the people they're arresting are the bad guys, right? Yeah, look, for sure. In the beginning, I think I felt that, um, um, you know, we're there to put bad people in jail, right? You, you get this, um, you know, crime committed, we're going to find out who did it, going to arrest somebody for that and put them in jail. But quickly you realize, as you just said, you know, if you look at our criminal justice system, you know, 70, 75% have an addiction or a mental illness or both. Well, what have we done to try and help them in the first place? And if nothing is the answer, then what did we expect would happen? And that's why we end up where we end up. So for sure, my my uh, over the, probably over that first six years or so, my perception of what I was there for and what I was expected to do changed. Um, you know, I worked in a, a small community of a thousand people where you know, we would average 100 criminal offenses a month for a 1000 people. So, wow. you know, more than the every in a community, uh, you know, a small isolated community, where 100% of the offenses were alcohol or addictions or mental illness. I don't remember one time where it wasn't. And then I worked in a community where it was a dry community, no alcohol, I don't think we arrested 20 people a year. <laughs> Um, now, I'm not suggesting the answer was a dry community, but I am telling you that the impact of alcohol, alcoholism and addictions uh, and the impact it has on mental health uh, and as a result, the impact it has on the, safe, the safety of that community are absolutely directly connected. So when we look at that, and it's probably one of the reasons today I speak about have we, even on, when we talk about our, our uh, justice system when it comes to uh, use of illegal drugs, have we actually been successful in our model of criminalizing people who are using drugs? And the answer is obviously not. Instead, we've impacted negatively on a socioeconomic or a diverse group who are already impacted negatively. Right. We've, we've actually made it even more difficult for them to step out of this, uh, the challenge that they face. So it's one of the reasons today that I support and, and would support decriminalization. And that doesn't mean you get off or you're, you're scot-free. You're still held accountable in some way, whether it's restorative practices like Portugal uses or a ticketing scheme like some other countries use. Or um, being accountable doesn't have to mean you're charged criminally and find yourself with a criminal record. And that's what we've lived by. And uh, I think it's... So, so, so my, you know, if I look at over the last 40 years, 40 years ago, last month, I showed up at the RCMP training facility to today, absolutely, I've changed 20 times over that 40 years. Some of it, very minor change, some of it very dramatic, but the dramatic change is my understanding and knowledge and my belief around the impact mental illness and addictions has on our criminal justice system. And the fact that we could do things differently for those of us who run these criminal justice systems, we could do things differently to positively impact on those outcomes. And I don't right. think we do enough because it's not easy. I mean, I, I, I've often said politicians have a four-year lifespan. Well, recently it's two years, but typically it's a four-year lifespan. They probably won't see any positive impact from their decision-making in four years if they make yeah. that decision today. So they have to think longer term and they have to maybe look at off ramps of success that doesn't exactly tell them the things they want to be uh, want to hear like 
well, we've reduced crime by 20%. Well, you're probably not going to hear that in the next four years if we do some yeah. things differently, but you're going to see a difference. And I think it's for all of us to start having that discussion. We know you won't see your success in four years, but we support it anyway, because we do believe based on research that it's going to have a better impact. And you look at, at uh, people who've been to the Dave Smith Youth Drug Treatment Center, you know, that, that do that 90-day program or 60-day program. And the fact that, you know, some of them today are out raising money for the Dave Smith Youth Drug Treatment Center. You know, Cindy Manor, who works there, and her, her son have been raising money for Dave Smith predominantly because of the impact it had on her son having spent his 90 days there and the fact that he was a drug addict and now yeah. he's not now he's in university now he's contributing to society where do you think he'd be i'm not so sure that he'd be in a good place so so i think those things have impacted on who i've become as well even even before i got you know left the policing i think it impacted on who i was as a police officer for the last 15 years for sure yeah and in a positive way yeah, and for those people who don't know, here in Ottawa, uh, when you were police chief um, and you were observing the number of, of crimes that were associated with drug addiction, and then you also observed that people were having to wait a long time for treatment, uh, you were involved in, in an effort to, uh, to create some facilities for drug treatment, including the Dave Smith uh, Center. So yeah. um, very powerful stuff. Um, so... You know, that's the, that's I think that's a really important lens through which we, you know, and I believe that years from now, we're going to we're going to do things very differently and look back on this as a time when we were too focused on on thinking of things as crimes and not societal problems that needed to systemic societal problems that needed to be addressed. So I hope we move further and faster in that direction. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I wanted to talk about uh, policing from another side too. And I know um, one of the big challenges you had as a police chief, and I know you've talked about it before, you and I have spoken about it before, is there are times when police officers make mistakes. And, uh, and as a police chief and as a leader, you're caught in a very tough position in that situation where you want to listen to the community and understand why they're upset, but you also have to protect the people that you're leading, the, the rank and file officers. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I know that's, you know that's a situation that has played out many times in North America over the last few years uh, when there have been shootings by police officers and that sort of thing. But uh, I know you experienced it more than once, and in particular, when there was where there was a, a woman who was brought to the police station and and was the situation was not handled properly. Um, what did you learn from those kinds of situations? Well, first of all, they they are they're difficult. Um, I, I think educating the membership quickly when when you get into those roles about the fact that not unlike we hold the community to account, um, often uh, the chief's job is to hold the organization and the membership to account. Um, when they you will say, say membership, you mean the, the, the police team, officer. the police officer. Yeah. yeah. Now they will say they understand that until it's time to hold them to account, as does the community, by the way. They don't behave yeah. differently. Very similar. Um, but it doesn't mean that you have to, that, that you have to destroy somebody to deal with the uh, the incident. And, and in fact, we probably were running about 20% of our 
internal complaint cases through restorative justice practices at the Ottawa police when I was there. Because I don't believe we, we have to destroy every individual for their behavior, for their action. Sometimes, um, as you would say, a mistake and sometimes intentional. You know, I have an officer who decides he's not going to show up for court tomorrow morning because he's really tired from playing hockey tonight. And as a result, we lose a case. Well, that has an impact on the community. It has an impact on our just criminal justice system. And he has to or she has to be held to account for that. Doesn't mean I have to fire them, but they have to understand the impact they're having. So I think that's helpful if they understand that you're going to do that. Because when the really difficult situation and the case you refer to in the cell block is one of those where the public want everybody fired and you realistically understand that people aren't getting fired for this. 100% they were wrong in the way they handled the, the situation. 100% they're going to find themselves charged under the Police Act. Um, to be fair, at the time, I didn't believe it was, uh, they, were, they were charged criminally. I didn't believe it was a criminal offense. I felt the officers uh, did made, made mistakes and did things wrong, but I didn't believe it was a criminal wrongdoing. And the courts agreed with that. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's very difficult because you have the community who see something very, very, in this case, a video, uh, very graphic, and they want everybody fired who was in the room. And yet you know that at the end of the day, those people did not go into that room with any intent to do what happened. It happened. They made a mistake. It was a split decision that was incorrect, and they, ha and they have to learn from it. But it doesn't mean they have to lose their job over it. Um, and that's the challenge you have is trying to explain to the community, we'll get to the bottom of this, trust us, because they don't at that moment, and we'll do a thorough investigation or we'll bring in an outside investigating agency. And the membership understanding that you're not there to, to protect them, you're there to ensure they get the same level of justice that we would expect from the public. And that that might mean discipline and it might mean no discipline. So I think trying to get every, and we were lucky in that case where I do think the vast majority of the public got there quickly that we did a review on a number of areas. Our equipment was terrible. You couldn't, there was no sound in the, in the hallways. You don't know what was being said. We talked about training for the people in those rooms and accountability for supervisors in those rooms at the time. And I thought the public, and I know the Ottawa Sun did a number of surveys through that and quickly we're getting into a place where, okay, we, we believe they're on the right path. We want to see now the the uh, the impact. And I think that's the piece where where the public really want to know what's going on is that transparency piece. What have we done? Why have we done it? How is it going to make sure this doesn't, or better ensure it's not going to happen again? But at the same time, the membership felt left out. And I the mistake, probably the biggest thing I learned from that case is that I didn't spend enough time I connected uh, with the membership uh, a little later than I should have. I probably should have been, you know, engaging with the membership in their platoon meetings uh, and me immediately when we started talking about what we're going to be doing instead of waiting and trying to manage the community expectations and then reacting to the membership. And as a result, it was a more difficult uphill battle internally than it had to be. And certainly I learned from it. Um, and I would have done it differently, but at the end, I think the outcome still would have been the same, that um, we would have had to have done all the things we did institutionally to correct some, uh, some, some problems we had, and that the officer, primary officer involved, the sergeant, would have still found himself uh, being disciplined, even though, as I said, I felt the criminal charge was not, uh, yeah. was not warranted. Yeah, and I, I, it's interesting, because we, 
we sometimes find ourselves in these situations where we're, you know, and if you own a business, you're, you're listening to your customers, but you also have to, to defend and protect your, the members of your team. Um, yeah. And you've, you've got to hold them accountable, but, but maybe not to the level that, that the customer, customer wants, expects. Right? Yeah. Um, so those kinds of situations are, are, are very challenging. Um, let, let's turn to your experience with cancer. Um, I think it's been about 10 years. Uh, yeah, 10, 10 years, um, 10 years last month I had surgery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, can you, so, so, you know, you're, I think you were in your early fifties at the time. Yeah. You're, you're, um, you mentioned earlier, you'd just gotten married. You're the chief of police. Um, life is good. And then, and then this discovery comes along. Can you just walk, yeah. walk us through what happened? Yeah. So first of all, I, I um, didn't feel great. So I decided to ask my doctor for a colonoscopy and um, was successful in getting one <laughs> and uh, was told. And those to are fun. No, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I, yeah. Anyway, the wrong venue to say what I felt, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember uh, the guy, the doctor telling me that, uh, yeah, you have a cancerous tumor. looks like it's about a year and a half old may have stopped growing for a while now it's growing again and then i fall asleep and then when i wake up i'm like what a terrible nightmare that was like holy yeah crap, I can't and, and we should point out you fall asleep because they've given you a bunch of drugs yeah they've given they've, you uh something to knock you out right yeah they've given you some drugs to so Thankfully. you can handle, handle the fact that <laughs> yeah. they're you know they're yeah. sticking a camera in a yeah. very uncomfortable yeah. place yeah yeah so so uh when i woke up he comes in to see me right away and i kind of it was kind of in my head that he had set up but it didn't make sense to me like uh, like, I mean, at the time I was, you know, heavily into running. I'd, I ran, I think I ran a half marathon like a week before. It felt great, you know, otherwise, other than just not feeling great from a stomach uh, perspective. And he told me again, he says, yeah, look, I've seen these enough. I know it's cancerous. It'll take weeks to get it back. I'd rather just get you on moving forward right away. So let's, you know, forward this on to the cancer clinic. And uh, I went through the, you know, week of I couldn't believe how terrible this is, you know, that I have cancer. You know, I tried to live a half decent life, never smoked in my life. Like all the things you, people tell you to be wary of. Well, guess what? I was wary of those things. So it was, um, yeah, it was, I found it difficult to deal with. I didn't tell anyone, didn't tell anyone at work, didn't tell anyone that uh, from my family members back home, uh, just my wife and I, and, and kind of kept it inside until I figured out what was going to happen next. I uh, went to the cancer clinic i was still very naive about it they showed up in uniform to get my x-rays <laughs> like it was you know I, I got 20 minutes i got to go in and get all this testing done kind of thinking i don't know where my head was on it i get there and then all of a sudden i realize everybody in the room uh, sitting around me is there for the same reason so now they know the police chief has cancer you know like it was just the dumbest thing for me i i, I don't know where my i don't know what i was thinking would happen because i had no experience with it so anyway, um, after about a month and a half, I was lucky enough to get surgery and they removed it and just about doubled in size in a month and a half. So got it really before it became probably stage three or four. And uh, after another month and a half, they came back and said, look, it hadn't spread. Um, you're a very lucky one, uh, no chemo. And, uh, and I moved on with life. And I didn't tell, I'd only taken a few weeks off work, in fact, uh, uh, holidays uh, for my surgery and recovery. So nobody kind of knew other than a few close people at the at the office that I had cancer. And I didn't talk about it again for a year and a half. Um, and that was to try and raise money for uh, cancer treatment. And I did a number of men's 
um, health talks for the hospital. I talked about, you know, getting the importance of getting a colonoscopy that the other testing they offer, which is cheap and free in the mail, uh, by the time you have something on there, you might be a later stage already. That uh, colonoscopy is the gold standard for a reason that you should be pushing your doctor to schedule you one, certainly when you turn 50. Um, I, I know not everybody liked me saying that because it would have meant bogging down a system, but I do know everybody I worked with <laughs> ended up getting a colonoscopy, um, having heard my story. Um, so, so, you know, I, I was very lucky. To be fair to this very day, if I go, you know, I get a blood test every six months and I still am nervous for the five days after my blood test. Sure. If, if I have a colonoscopy every year or two, I'm still nervous going for my colonoscopy thinking, you know what, it's sure it's been seven years, eight years, nine years, it's, is it going to come back? Um, but it was, like I told you before, it was an important year in my life because it did make me refocus what was important to me um, and my family and, and uh, making sure that I was taking better care of myself, not just from a, you know, do you work out well, lots, do you eat well, but, you know, making sure you're getting the right amount of sleep and not working 80, 90 hour weeks refocusing your energies as well. So I think it was helpful in many ways to help me have a better life for the next decade afterwards. Why didn't you tell people what was, what was at the heart of that? You know what? And initially um, I know how I felt sometimes when I heard someone had cancer and it wasn't good. Oh my God, he's got cancer. That's it. You know, like just a matter of time, like the things that went through my mind judging um, I felt others would have um, that partially. Uh, secondly, is I didn't want to um, it to define me that uh, I still had a job to do and a life to live. And I didn't want people uh, to, to think, oh, you know, he's just newly married. She's going to be a widow, like all of those things. Right. Yeah. I, so I didn't want to be I've, defined I've heard that by, from other people too, that yeah. they don't want to be the guy with cancer or the yeah. woman with cancer and, right? and, or, the, or the guy who recovered from cancer. Yeah. I didn't want to be any of those things. Yeah. Um, so it's not the way I've ever defined myself. Um, and I didn't want it to define me. So I think that was part of it. And then, you know, eight, nine months later, I think it was about, look, maybe my story can help someone else. So I got past that. And and that's when I decided, look, let's do some of these men's health uh, events um, I think I spoke at the um, Ottawa Hospital breakfast one time as well uh, uh, for the same reason, because I, you know, I wanted to make sure that and I remember going to the Ottawa Health one and telling a joke and nothing funny happens at that breakfast. <laughs> like, it's so serious, right? Yeah. Uh, and I remember thinking, you know, they probably won't like my joke, but I have to tell it anyway, because it's the only way I get through talking about this sometimes. What um, was the joke? Well, the joke was that when I had my colonoscopy, it was good to meet someone after 30 years of policing who dealt with more assholes than I had. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the call, I think the guy, the doctors used it since. <laughs> yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, I mean, so far so good. Obviously it's been 10 years. You're, you're yeah, healthy. No, no, it's, okay. uh, yeah, no, no, it's great. It's yeah. Um, you know, the, my, my personal doctor says, look, you know, you're at the point now is if it comes back, it's new, it's not old. So yeah, thinking that it's still out there hanging around is unrealistic. Right. So I, I realize it's only hanging around in my mind, not yeah. in my body. So, but, but it's still there. So, yeah, of course. 
Yeah, but physically, you're basically in the same position as anybody who's never had cancer, where where that's it, right. It's, yeah, it would be yeah. a new thing as opposed yeah. to it a recurrence. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're a, you you you're you're the Ottawa police chief, and you get a call from the Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper, yeah. <laughs> inviting you to join the Senate. Um, so was that a tough decision? It was actually, I, you know, I was in Finland on holidays uh, just after Christmas and um, thought it was a practical joke at first uh, from somebody maybe give me a rough time because I'd never belonged to a political party. Uh, most people wouldn't even know which way I leaned, if I leaned at all um, or how I even voted. You know, it's um, I've always been, I think, very good at kind of walking the middle of the road politically and trying to connect and engage as much as I could. So it was difficult. I said I needed a few weeks to think about it. Um, one is because I didn't agree with everything the prime minister or his people, the decisions they had made. I disagreed in particular around criminal justice matters relating to youth. They were at the time trying to pass legislation to name um 14-year-olds convicted of serious crimes and things like that that I had have no impact on the on that individual or the community, you know, positively. Yeah. So I, I, I disagreed with the number of things they were engaging in. Um, and to be fair, spoke to people like my sister, you know, back home in Cape Breton. And, uh, she said, you know, look, if you think you can influence at a greater level, then you should think about it. But if you don't think so, then you shouldn't. Is that clear? And we had a, and a senator in Cape Breton called Alan J. McHacken. You probably remember uh, Alan J. McHacken and the king of Cape Breton, we called him. Because I don't think anybody ever knew he was a liberal, really. You know, like we just knew that he if could get things done. That if there was going to be a new bridge in Cape Breton, it's because we could name it after Alan J. Because he got the money. It wouldn't matter what his politics were. So I'd hoped that, you know, I could bring a little bit of that. Now, to be fair, in my area, which would be policing, mental illness, addictions, uh, world. Um, so I'd hoped I would. So after a few weeks, I called back and said, yeah, I'll look, I'll take the appointment. I need a month and a half because I've got some things to tie up in Ottawa. And I uh, took the appointment. I, and I've missed policing ever since, to be fair. Really? Uh, I do feel, yeah, I do feel like I didn't, uh, maybe I never would have felt like I was done to be, to be honest right. about that as well. So maybe that's a reality. But I, I, I loved um, being a police officer. I loved policing. I loved the impact, the influence we could have when it came to creating change. And I felt as a police chief, I probably influenced more public policy changes than I did as a senator, for sure. Mm. Um, because you speak from a different podium. People aren't immediately questioning your politics um, like they do sitting in the Senate. They immediately want to know your politics. What's that, what's that come from again? You know, like... Yeah. What's the agenda, so, so, right? Like, yeah. What's the, yeah. Yeah. What's the backroom discussion that took place for you to come up with that? Yeah. Whereas as a police chief, that never happened. Right. So uh, I miss that. What have you learned since joining the Senate and what's the experience been like? Yeah. Some look, the committee work has been very good. I think the research that comes out of the Senate, I would argue is some of the best, you know, we, no limit on who you can hire, who you can find, who you can drag into a room to help you develop uh, policy. Um, so from, from the committee piece, uh, it's very enjoyable. I sit on the National Security Intelligence Committee, which uh, David McGinty chairs, which is on the review of in, the 17 intelligence agencies in Canada, which has been spectacular for the past four years or so. Now that's been uh, very enjoyable. The politics in the Senate, I still found difficult. I, 
uh, two years ago, I left the Conservative uh, Caucus and we formed an independent caucus of 15 of us, um, which I think has been helpful because I wanted to speak about things like decriminalization. It was more difficult to get that support uh, sitting in a caucus, or I felt it would be. Maybe it wouldn't have yeah. been, but I felt it would be. So I, I, I still think the politics is very difficult in the Senate. And today it's different politics because, you know, the current government has appointed upwards to 60 um, senators uh, independent instead of uh, appointing them as members of, of a Liberal Party, for example. Um, but realistically, now what it has become is a, a large group of independents who control the Senate based on their beliefs um, in most cases that that uh, mirrors the beliefs of the government uh, but not always but still it's a majority it hasn't changed that um, if anything I, I i wish we would see more cross benchers like you see in in the british house of lords in britain for example where you have a large group of people that will vote with the government one day and against the government the next but we really don't see that we do see a lot more amendments uh, which slows legislation down more than anything um, and some positive changes like on the uh, medical assistance and dying bill. But I wish we would see more cross-benching where there was a lot more people who are fighting independently for things they they believe in uh, or their constituents believe in since we represent regions or provinces um, than we are seeing. So it's yeah. uh, many days it's been disappointing, I have to say. Um, so you have a very close friend, Eli Elshantiri, who's an yeah. Ottawa city councillor. He was the chair of the police board when, when you were the police chief. Uh, you know him very well. I found this quote from him when you were appointed to the Senate, <laughs> where he says, I don't know if you know Vern, but he's a 20-minute man. He's ADD. Everything that he has to do, it has to be finished in 20 minutes. Otherwise, he loses focus. He goes to the BlackBerry. To say the least, I think he will be bored to death in this position. <laughs> that was at the time you were appointed to the Senate. And that's a friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Think of yeah. what my enemy said. <laughs> uh, is, is, is that true? Yeah, look, uh, it's not uncommon if I'm having a conversation and I've already decided where we should go that I've turned off everything else you're saying and I've kind of, I'm writing down what we're going to do next, you know, and then when yeah. you're done, what do you think? I'm saying, well, we're going to go here, right? So that's for sure. That's true. I, I don't, uh, I don't disagree with that. And in the Senate, it's more difficult because you have to follow the political niceties, right? I don't, I don't understand. Why, why are we doing that again? Well, because, you know, we, seven people want to speak to this issue. Are you serious? Like, right. <laughs> Yeah. We want to talk about medical. Yeah, we, we know dying. where it's going to end up. But yeah, let's have to speak let's, first. let's yeah. have them write it down. We'll read it later. And yeah. I won't, but have, I tell them I will at least <laughs> like to me, that's the challenge is, is that uh, that sitting there and going through the, the political niceties of politics. And I find it difficult. And, and I'm sure Eli faces it as well in council, particularly now where you have a council that, you know, it's a push pull. I think every day I watch and uh, it's, I wish they would spend less time on politics and more time on policies that impact positively on on uh, on Ottawans right now because I don't feel like it's happening every day, and it's the same in in uh, in uh, big P politics on the hill. I think. Yeah. 
So uh, last question for you. I, 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 we've touched on this a little bit already. And, and I know when you were a police chief, you tried to focus more on addressing problems before they become criminal issues. Um, yeah. And you, you teach leadership um, and you've talked a lot about ethical leadership. Um, can you just talk about how that applies more broadly, not just in the, in the sphere of social problems that lead to criminal issues, but just how, as individuals, we have a tendency, and it's not just politicians that have short time horizons where they measure yeah. their results, right? All leaders have, are at risk of that. Um, how can we become more focused on fixing the roots of things rather than hacking away at the leaves? Yeah, well, you know, it's the, we all end up downstream pulling bodies out and without looking upstream, right? I, I think that's natural because we're not all upstream. I think it's about engaging those who are upstream though. And as an example is, uh, you know, recently I, when I spoke to uh, some people at inner city health about addictions, they gave me more information about the gang issue in Ottawa than probably most police officers could have because they hear it from those who are impacted by those gangs. So I think it's about maybe looking for people who you don't expect know the answer and just to see whether or not they have something you didn't necessarily go for before. It's, it's back to when we were fighting as Ottawa Police Service for drug treatment centers. Nobody thought, what, what do the police have to offer when it comes? We're talking about a health thing. Right? I, remember, I remember the uh, uh, people at, uh, you know, uh, my, my people at uh, GEO and elsewhere saying, well, why are the police even in this meeting? And me saying, look, the average street addict commits four to eight crimes a day. Who do you think that connects to us and our community. So we want to help because we can build a crime prevention tool. So I think it's connecting with those who don't realize or trying to make sure that they feel an open discussion is available to them to try and impact positively on the challenges you're facing in a community. And, and uh, whether that's education, healthcare, um, municipal politics, you know, I, I would love to see municipal politicians meeting with high school students in civics classes across the city throughout this fall to ask what they think is important to them next fall when they're running for election, as an mm -hmm. example. Right. Because I know I meet with the civic students at Mother Teresa, and I'll tell you what, they have some ideas. Mm. And some of them are really good. Some of them are bonehead, but some of them are really good ideas you know, that they think would have a positive impact on their community. So I think it's easy for us to fill, our, fill a room with the 10 people who will nod heads when, when, I, when I speak or you speak, Mark. But I, I want to be in the room where they're shaking their head, saying, well, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. I remember when we were talking to the Somali community about recruiting and meeting with the Somali moms and them telling me why uh, they were concerned about their um, mostly boys becoming police officers. And it wasn't what I thought it was. Right. I thought it was based on coming from Somalia where policing is challenging and, and often corrupt. And, but it was bigger than that, right? It was bigger than that. It was about the fact that they hadn't seen positive role models from within the police community possibly ever. And then how, how would they see that? And the fact that the Somali youth basketball program was actually having that impact. So I think it's about asking those questions of people that you don't expect to have the answers instead of always asking the people you do expect to have the answers. That's a very important lesson. This has been a lot of fun and very illuminating and interesting. 
just what I expected. Uh, congratulations again on your PhD from Trump University. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you take care of yourself, Mark, and be okay. safe on the road, okay? <laughs> Thank you very much for this. See you, buddy. That's Vern White, Canadian senator, former police chief. I love that message about how once you know the right thing to do, then you're out of options. And also about looking around the corner. I think that's really powerful. I really admire Vern's sense of fairness, compassion, and duty to the community. That belief that when you care for your community, your community cares for you. And I've worked with Vern on a number of different community issues here in Ottawa. And again, I just, I really admire the way he approaches those challenges. Once again, I want to thank Senator Vern White for joining us on Digging Deep. If you enjoyed this episode, please review it and share it with others. That will help us produce more great episodes. And if you want to keep digging deep into topics and lessons like this, or see the show notes for this episode, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can read my blog. You can do all of that at my website, letsdigdeep.com. And get ready for more great stories and powerful lessons on the next edition of Digging Deep. Thank you for listening. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.